Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. George and Margaret Blackledge are a couple in late middle age who lost their son in a riding accident. They then lost their grandson when their daughter-in-law took her and the boy off to live with a redneck clan in the next state. Let Him Go, the latest book from Larry Watson, is the story of what happens when Margaret makes up her mind to go after the boy and George finds his choices taken out of his hands. Larry Watson has many gifts as a novelist, and one of his major ones is a marvelous ability to evoke a sense of place. Most of us have little or no experience of the badlands of North Dakota in 1951, but Larry Watson's novel takes us there effortlessly. The technology of Skype allowed Tim in London to talk with Larry in Wisconsin about Let Him Go. This is Tim Haig Reads Books, and I'm talking again to Larry Watson, who I last spoke to two years ago about his previous book, American Boy. The new one is called Let Him Go. And for this one, we're in North Dakota in 1951, and it's a land that's even bleaker than Larry Watson usually inhabits. Now, the only thing I know about North Dakota is that it doesn't even have Mount Rushmore in it. Uh, Larry, can you tell me a little about the area? Uh, well, one of the curious things about uh, North Dakota is that it's both Midwest and West in terms of the United States. Uh, so once you cross the Missouri River, and I grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is right on the Missouri. Once you cross the Missouri, you're into the American West. And uh, on the eastern side of the Missouri, it's much more uh, Midwestern, if that distinction means anything. And uh, But on the on the other side, I, I mean, in the course of the book, our, our lead characters who are going to come to it for a minute make a make a trip, they make a journey. And you have them crossing the Badlands, which is which is a marvelously evocative phrase. But that, they, that means something, doesn't it, in that in that area? Uh, it does, and it's a real place. Uh, and, and now I can't remember if I used this phrase in the novel or not. But one of the ways that the uh, Badlands has been characterized is hell with the fires out. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it's certainly like that in the book because you you evoke it beautifully. I mean, of course, having to get from one place to another is is um, and and across this this awful area from one town to another is very, very much um, uh, what, what the book is about on, on, on that level. But you start off and your, uh, your openings always uh, thrill me. They always make me uh, you know, start turning to see where we're going. You start off with George Blackledge walking home for lunch. And I love the walking. Who walks in the Midwest? And he's walking home for lunch where his wife has an ultimatum. So, uh, what is that? Uh, she says he has to decide. He's either going to go with her or not, uh, but she's determined to go to try to find her grandson and to bring him back home. And she needs the grandson because a, a, a large part of this uh, book is about, is, well, in fact, at one point you, you say this man and this woman have reached the age at which they're as likely to see what's not there as what is, and, and what's not there is their grandson. Or, well, no, actually, what's not there is their son because he's dead, and the grandson is all they have left of him. Now, if you'd wanted to make it a melodrama, of course, the Blackledge's son would have been murdered, and this would be a re revenge story, but it's not like that. He died in a different way. He died in a freak accident. He was thrown from a horse, uh, in spite of the fact that he was an expert horseman. Uh, but you're, you're, uh, you're very perceptive to say that this is something that Margaret Blackledge feels she needs to do. It's, it's not just a whim, not just a desire, but it's a need on her part. And it's a need that's going to have uh, costs as, as, as the book goes forward. Now, I, I'm, I'm a bit anxious about 
giving anything away because I found that every every unfolding event, every every development was something that I was looking forward to discovering as I was reading it. So we're not going to talk a lot about the detail of, of, of the, the plot, but what we can talk about is these two people on their family quest because the novel it really is as much about them and their relationship uh, as it is about anything else. So let, let's start with George, he's he's a uh, one of uh, he's a sort of laconic American archetype. Uh, what are we to make of him? Well, George is able to do something that Margaret can't. George is able to let certain things go, uh, not everything certainly, but uh, he's able to let some things go. He's not as attached uh, to the land as Margaret is. She's not. He's not as attached to heritage. He's not as concerned about uh, perpetuating the family name as as Margaret is. Um, so uh, they're quite different in that regard. And uh, he's he's um, I, I I can you know I can see him as Henry Fonda. He's got that that slight reserve as well. He 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 knows other people. I, you know he he understands when they when they meet the 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 uh, family that uh, that they're going to see where the dangers are in a way that she doesn't even though she's very shrewd but he he's 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 got that reserve hasn't he there's a passage where a barman tries to have a joke with him and and he won't play ball and you know the barman says oh it's been a while and, yeah. uh, and george says and it will be again he he is a drinker or he has been a drinker yes and he starts up again in in the course of the novel although he's he's uh, able to to uh, restrain himself but i think there's something in in uh, in George Blackledge, that is always standing a little bit apart, uh, a little bit apart from from uh, the rest of humanity, and perhaps that's what enabled him to do his job as a sheriff, and perhaps it's also what enables him to make those observations about character that Margaret isn't, since she's much more likely to uh, come forward to introduce herself to try to establish relationships, if not friendships. Well, you say that, but she lived next door to the neighbor for three years um, in the place they leave. And it's only really as she's leaving that she introduces herself. And of course, that makes it more poignant later in the book when she does make real friends with, with a woman that she meets in the town they go to. Yes, their life in Dalton, uh, as far as Margaret was concerned, was temporary. Even though they had to sell the ranch, she has not quite cut herself off from that. Although when George wants to take her back there just for a look, uh, she she wants to refuse that even that short that short trip, uh, but she has certain attachments uh, that she won't let go of, and other attachments that she is unwilling to make because of those that are in her past. I, I've liked lots of, of the women characters in your books. I, I remember falling a little bit in love with uh, with Laura in the novel of that name. Uh, I think Margaret is as vivid a female character as you've made. Um, I, I think almost the first time we meet her, you, you've got a phrase, she, she thrusts her fingers into the back pocket of her jeans. And, you know, I, I can see her. Was, was she special? Did you pull out all the stops to, to make her memorable and, and vivid? She was special to me. She was special in the writing. Uh, I'm not quite sure uh, what it was that I did, but there was something about Margaret Blackledge that was... Uh, her lines seem to come uh, easily and naturally to me, and insofar as lines are ever, ever come easily to me, um, and and she just seemed to leap off the page. I think she was uh, uh, an awful lot, uh, uh, a sort of amalgamation of an, a lot of uh, females from from the West, all rolled into one. And of course, uh, she has her counterpart in Blanche Weeboy, 
and uh, in some ways Blanche wrote herself as well. Well, that's an interesting point. Just as a side, do you um, find dialogue difficult to write generally, or does it come? Does it always come easily? Uh, you know, with with this book and and from this book going forward, some uh, fiction that I've been writing that I've been working on since Let Him Go, uh, dialogue has been coming much easier. When I first began writing, I was I, I was uh, so fearful of writing dialogue that I I think I ruined some fictions by trying to write my way around it. And now it feels just wonderful to get characters uh, uh, to start talking on the page. Sometimes it's a problem getting them to shut up. <laughs> what changed? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, and of course, my characters often are not talkers. So maybe it's something about uh, once they do begin speaking, they're talking about things that that uh, that matter to them. So going back to the book, um, but I, I think I can see that you you enjoyed um writing margaret you've you got some some beautifully descriptive um phrases they, her eyes flash like the underside of a thundercloud at one point which is i mean again you can see it i'm always a little un- uncomfortable with descriptions of, of prose when people say his prose is very spare or his prose is very lyrical and yeah i think two years ago i, I described yours as limpid and you know i'm still not sure what that means but i think really what i mean is really really good thank you, <laughs> thank you. i'll accept that thank written, you is what i'm trying to say um so uh, margaret is I, I think very vivid she's a lady of a certain age of course these, these are these are people with a grandson and they are exactly the age you would expect them to be um so let's talk about their marriage for, because for me it's it's the best thing in a very good book tell me about uh, the marriage between george and margaret well somebody asked me not long ago uh if if i thought of uh uh, let him go as a love story, and the question surprised me a little bit. I thought it was obvious that it was, and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, I'm not sure I've written a novel that wasn't a love story of one sort or another. Uh, but their marriage is typical of of many long marriages. They have a kind of shorthand between them. They they often know where the other is going in a conversation, uh, well in advance of. Of, of it actually going there. But there are also certain things that um, that trouble the marriage, particularly on George's part, uh, some things in the past. And he can't keep from talking to, he, he can't keep from alluding to them, but he can't quite bring himself to talk about them. And, and Margaret, on the, other sa- on the other hand, says, can't we just set this aside? Uh, but he's a jealous man, and perhaps because uh, he he suppresses many things, he can't let this something in the in their past go. Uh, yes, indeed, and 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 in fact, the marriage is one of the reasons you set the book in 1951, isn't it? That marriage was more interesting then as as a, a subject for fiction. I think it was. Uh, uh, I think couples felt as though they had to stay together no matter what, and that made for a lot of uh, strong but strained marriages and relationships. Uh, you, you'll think I'm obsessed with sex because we talked about sex with the last book as well. But I, I, I loved the the their the relations between them. George, for instance, he knows not to look when she changes her clothes. She changes her clothes in the car one time, uh, even after all these years of marriage. And of course, even after all these years of marriage, he still wants to. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, that's very good. But 
but she brings on this trip a certain nightgown. And I noted down the, the, the phrase you used, she'd never spent that much on nightwear, but at the time, drastic action was in order. The money was well spent. The nightgown has never failed to have its intended effect. And of course, you have a flashback as well to the time when they became lovers. When And she made the running. She was the one who, who was uh, uh, much more uh, free and, and comfortable in her body when they first uh, got together. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm glad you've, you you touched on that uh, aspect of their relationship. Uh, you're right, George knows not to look, but he still wants to look, uh, and he is still powerfully attracted to her, and she understands that she has that, that power over him. But for the most part, she uses her powers for good, not for evil. <laughs> powers, yeah, well, it's lovely, because it is... It, it's not a love story in that in that it uh, sort of follows the the story of their love affair, but it's a story about people who do love each other and and where that matters and has has an impact on the events that are going on. Yes, and I I and they understand what the other needs. It's not they don't always answer to that need, but they do understand the need in the other. Um, and of course, George's uh, act toward the end of the novel is something that is in in response to what he perceives as a powerful, powerful need in his wife. You even have uh, a reference to, to uh, needs. There's, there's a conversation they have about a brothel in the town they're traveling to. And uh, it's, it's very funny because the madam has a technique for dealing with well, customers who won't pay their bills. She drives her very distinctive carriage and parks it outside their house until they pay. And Margaret teasingly asks George if he ever went there. He says, oh, he's indignant about it. You should know better than that. And she says, come on, George, a man has his needs. And he says, so does a woman. Yes, and, and she seems far more open about that and willing to discuss the matter than, than he does. But there's something that's quite personal in that exchange for him, something that he, he can't quite keep from touching and yet it just will not heal over. Yeah, well, you do have a brilliant feel for, for, for the little scene or that the, the brief exchange in dialogue that paints the big picture that way. The other main character, or I was going to say the main character is Bill Weeboy. It's actually the Weeboy clan is really yes. the other main character in the book. Tell us a little about them. You, you mentioned Blanche earlier on. Well, uh, uh, Blanche is very much like uh, Margaret Blackledge. Uh, family is extremely important to to Blanche. She feels as though someone who has the wee boy name belongs close to her and and under her roof. Uh, she. We should probably make clear that uh, that uh, the the grandson is staying with the the wee boy clan. That's why um, uh, Margaret and, and George have gone there. Yes, exactly. Yes, uh, 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 Lorna there, uh, who was who was their daughter in law, has remarried and has now. Uh, is now a wee boy. So please tell me, tell me about the wee boys. Uh, they are clannish, and they're they're again almost an American archetype, aren't they? Although um, specifically fixed with with the detail to make them live. Well, uh, in in a traditional Western, I suppose they might have been cattle rustlers or something like that. Uh, and but now it's it's uh, the the scraps of of automobiles that are that are uh, litter the wee boy grounds car rustlers car rustlers that's excellent yeah yeah and uh, uh blanche will do whatever is necessary to keep the family going to help the family survive and if that means uh, going outside the law she's not above that so she has a stake in the, in the grandson that, that mirrors uh, margaret exactly and the uh the town that they live in is 
is intimidated by the wee boys. How does that work? Uh, probably by uh, less by actual acts and and more by reputation. I I imagine that almost everyone in town has a wee boy story that they tell to sort of shudder over and and shake their heads over and to say those wee boys you want to you want to give them a lot of a lot of space. And and, well, and you would, and of course, once once these sets of characters collide, there is bound to be trouble, and there really is trouble. I, I said at the beginning that we're not going to discuss the the events that happen that unfold in the course of the book because I think it's just going to spoil it for people. So instead, what I'm going to suggest is that um, people should buy it and and read it. I, I from from page one, I I couldn't put it down and was was uh, was dying to know. And the marvelous thing is, I didn't know where you were going at any time. And yet, when you got there, it was inevitable. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Many years ago, uh, uh, a student who was reading one of my books, it was assigned to her in school, uh, wrote to me, and she sent me a little book review that I thought was wonderful, that I've remembered ever since. She said, I liked your book very much because I always knew what was going to happen, but it never did. (laughs) Well, you see, I never knew what was going to happen, but it certainly did. I'm going to say this is uh, Larry Watson's 10th book, I think, isn't it, Larry? Uh, I'm not keeping track, but it sounds oh. that sounds about right. Well, th- self control. I, I can count it on the on the inside of the uh, of the uh, flyleaf. So it's the tenth book, and it is called Let Him Go. It's published by Milkweed Editions at twenty four dollars in America, and of course, it's obtainable on Amazon for the rest of us in the rest of the world. It's also available as an ebook reader, a, a Kindle edition. That's um, that we say that's the modern age. It's not me. I'm still in 1951 with uh, with George and Margaret. Larry Watson, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. That was Tim Haig Reads Books. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.